today, Jesus, uh, we're talking about the trap laid, and I wanted to jump right into it by saying this. In America, we were extremely influenced by Judeo-Christian values in the 20th century. How many of you have heard of, for example, the blue laws? All right, one person, two. Blue laws were specifically laws put into place so that towns will shut down their stores on Sunday so people can focus on God and worship. So in New Jersey, they still have the blue laws in effect in Bergen County. So after church, you can't hang out at the mall. People still cringe about that. They're asking it to change, but it's amazing they haven't changed it. So because of Judeo-Christian values, we had what's called Christendom. Everybody went to church. Hello, Mayor George. Hello, Bob. We'll see you at church Sunday. Sure will. And so this was what we called Christendom. The society looked at the church to say, hey, how do we live as a family? How do we look at the poor and hungry? Today, we live in what's called post-Christendom. It's a fact. It means the majority of the society look at the church now negatively. They are not driven by Judeo-Christian values. They are driven by the society secular values. So the question becomes, how do we as Christians live in this new space where when you say, what, you got to sit in my shoes. When, you, when I go to a baseball game and they say, hey, and at the end they say, what do you do, by the way, Jason? And I say, pastor, they go, oh. <laughs> For a couple of reasons, because one is, uh, are, you, uh, are you judging me? Second is, oh, you're a holy man? Or third, like, are you one of those weird pastors? It's fascinating. But when you said, I'm a pastor in 1960s, people would say, oh, you're a pa- can I buy you breakfast? <clears throat> hint, hint. Can I buy you lunch? And we used to love it. Well, I wasn't there at that time. Now, a friend of mine who wears a collar, he's a Christian minister, he wears a collar, he says when he takes his son to the bathroom when they're at a park, he finds himself explaining to people looking at them, oh, I'm his father. We live in a post-Christendom world. And so how do we live faithfully as followers of Jesus Christ and believing in a God when the society has shifted away? And so churches have responded to this in two ways, one of two ways mainly. First is churches say, we're going to fight. We're going to hold on to the Christian values. It's us versus them. And it's not panning out well. The second way churches have adapted is, hey, it's time we open our minds. You know, the Bible's great and all, but let's just love. Let, and let's just become like the society because we need to change our, we need to change us a little bit. And this is the bad kind of change. Let's look like the world and let's embrace the culture. Which is the best way? And when you look at Jesus, he was in the middle of literally the most secular time ever because he was the founder of Christ, Christian. He was Christ. No one knew God and the Trinity in that sense. And so Jesus, he, the way he lives, he lived a third way. He lived in a secular society bringing in God's kingdom in a way that 
made religious people uncomfortable and atheists uncomfortable. And so I want to look into Jesus and say, could we live into this? I think we can. Jesus did not assimilate to the pagan world. He didn't look like the world. And he also didn't say, oh, keep those, keep those religious people away from me. He walked, talked, immersed himself, and yet he knew who he was clearly. So I want to go into this because in Matthew chapter 22, today's scripture, we see that dynamic of how do you live into God's kingdom while under a pagan society? And this is Matthew 22, 15 through 22. So let's look. So it starts with two groups of people, Herodians, who were chummy chummy with Rome because they wanted one of King Herod's Jewish descendants to be the ruler. And then there were these Pharisees who followed the law of God strictly and they judged other people and they were very proud to keep it. They were div- they're not bad people. They meant well. But they hated each other. But you can see in today's text, they came together because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So you hate Jesus, we hate Jesus. Let's hate Jesus together. So they came together and said, let's trap Jesus in his own words. And they came up with the brilliant question. And so they came together, they approached Jesus, and first they say, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. And the irony here is they call him true, you teach truth, and you're not swayed, and the irony is they're lying. <laughs> they're, not e- they're not even being authentic. By the way, here's a lesson for young people. Whenever people come out to you in the beginning and they flatter you, not nice to you, not encourage you, but they flatter you, that's a red flag. They taught us that in seminary. When you go to your first church, students, and your first person that goes to you and says, you're the best pastor, we've been waiting for you, you are amazing. Seminary's taught us, that's the person you got to watch out for. <laughs> Flattery, it doesn't go well. And so, so Biola students are taking notes right now. <laughs> and so they ask him this question, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What an, it's such a brilliant question if you wanted to trap Jesus. And the problem is, the question is asking like this question. Mr. So-and-so, uh, is it true that you still pick on little kids and punch them in the playground? Just listen to that question. So if I say no, it means you used to pick on little kids and punch them in the playground. If I say yes, it means I'm a criminal. And so the way they phrase the question is basically you have two options. And the, no matter way you answer it, you're going to be caught. And so the question was a trap because if Jesus said, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, it wasn't just about giving money. Rome wanted Jews and shoved it in their face, Caesar is God. If you want our protection, you pay Caesar this tax with the money that we give you that you have to buy. You can't use your own local currency. People despised this tax because it wasn't just about money. It was about just bringing in other gods, imposing their will. And so if Jesus were to say, yes, you have to pay taxes, the people would say, this guy's a flake, he's a traitor, what a, what a crock, we're walking away. And that's what they hoped. 
It's actually said in the coin uh, on the denarius. It says Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustine. So they attributed Tiberius to be God. Now, if Jesus said, "No, it is not lawful. Don't pay the tax," then Rome's like, "All right." Herodians and Pharisees were like, "We got him. We got witnesses." Rome will come in and say, "You are arrested for defying the emperor." And so. Jesus saw right through them, and he says, "Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax." And it's so interesting. He didn't even have the coin. He had to ask for it from the crowd because his followers would not carry this kind of idolatry and, and this Roman pagan coin. And they brought him a denarius. Jesus asked, "Whose likeness and inscription are on this coin?" And it's clear. You saw a picture. Caesar, and so verse twenty-one, Jesus says famously, "Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's." When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. I just want to take this text and give two takeaways. And so here's the first takeaway: in a postmodern world like us, or in a secular world like Jesus' time, God's people need to think. Well, very well. They have to think well outside the box of what we know. See, what was remarkable about Jesus' answer? The commentators say they marveled at Jesus not because it was such a brilliant answer. They expected him to say yes or no. They didn't expect him to give this kind of contextual answer, and it was right. And no one got angry, so they walked away. And so Jesus didn't get boxed in with this option. I remember I went to a restaurant for the first time in high school, and it was a sit-down restaurant. And the waitress came to me and said, "Yes, what would you like? Super salad." I was so nervous. I said, "Yes." <laughs> She was like, "Would you like soup or salad, you little punk?" <laughs> and so sometimes there are only two answers. But when it comes to the issues of life, especially in a postmodern world. It is not black and white. It takes wisdom of God, grounded in biblical truth. And so I want to do a little fun thing. In your insert, do you see your paper? There's there's a part where there's nine dots. You'll see something like this. And don't Google it. If you know it, don't call it out. And this is we're gonna play a game. You have to cross every dot using four straight lines, without picking up your pencil. Okay. So look at this dot. You have to cross every single dot using four straight lines without picking up your pencil. And so you could use a pencil. You could visualize it. Is it possible or is it impossible? Well, the fact that I'm sharing this is probably possible. But as you're struggling through it, and I just like looking at the faces of those who are like. I don't. I can't do it. <laughs> I couldn't. I didn't figure it out either. A lot of people would say it's impossible. One, two, three, four. Well, the middle dot. And so the answer is: You ready? Are you ready? It's possible. And the reason, the secret is, you have to go outside of the box. One goes straight down past the third dot to open space, and it crosses over. 
Number two, three, and then four. And so what's fascinating about this brain teaser is the reason people get stumped is they literally don't think outside the box. They don't think about the space they could go into, spill over. How many of you, be honest, let's confess our sins. You colored outside the lines when you were a little kid. You bad people. You bad people. And the brilliant people are those who they say are, are not afraid of borders. And so, so this is Jesus. He takes this issue, and, and what I want to keep showing is crucial skills, this book on leadership says, whenever we box ourselves into two answers, yes or no, this is what they say. They call it a fool's choice, quote unquote. These are false dilemmas that suggest we face only two options, both of them bad, when in fact we face several choices, leaders are not are able to think outside the box. Some of them good, and this is what I want to hit with. We suffer, the book says, we suffer from or thinking. In other words, when we only have two options, we suffer from or thinking. In a postmodern world, for example, I know a lot of parents struggle with technology, phones, cell phones, internet. Should we give it to our kids or not? And I say, we take it all away. Hallelujah. No, I want to see the reaction of high school kids. So technology, do we, is it good or is it bad? And a lot of people are finding there's a third way. The question isn't, should we avoid technology or should we embrace technology? Here's how Christians should think. How do the people of God redeem technology to glorify God and to bless others? So the question isn't, is technology bad? It's the third way. How do we redeem it for the sake of God's kingdom? And so a lot of times we're like, oh, I, I hate cell phones. Cell phones are bad. Oh, I love cell phones. It's a lot more than that. It's how do you use technology? We're using technology now in like 20 different ways at this very moment. Some of you have pacemakers, we have a screen, I have a iPad, some of you are locked into your phone. We always use technology. The question isn't, is it bad or good? It's how do you redeem it? And so Jesus is showing us here, when you have a world that's driven away from God, how do you look at issues? You look at it not in a black and white, how do you look at it in a way that's grounded, redeeming, in a way that honors God? Uh, in, Matthew, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus looks at this issue, and he, the third way he's looking at is confirmed by Peter, who was standing there. Can we read this together? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Do we give taxes to Caesar or not? Yes or no? And Jesus says, yes and no. Be subject but could we read that underline one more time? Who? For the Lord's. Not for Caesar, not for the president, not for America. You obey in this liminal transitionary world we live in for the Lord's sake. Oh, that gives a little more context. How do I go to school that teaches garbage sometimes and ha have peace? For the Lord's sake, you live and you educate and you raise up your kids and then let them go to school. For how do I work for a boss who hates Jesus and he's just cursing them off? For the Lord's sake, use it as a witnessing opportunity. 
because it's not yes or no. It's how do you walk in this space with God? So it's not a yes or no. So that's the first takeaway. Here's the second takeaway. In a postmodern world, we could extrapolate. We live in this world as people under a different kingdom. Can we read that together? In a postmodern world, we live in this world as people under a different kingdom. This is Christianity. Um, do you guys remember what Jesus, Jesus said when he first preached? This is his first sermon. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came into this world. A new kingdom is arising. You live in Rome, but there's a new kingdom. So when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, he's saying, give the money, give all the laws, follow it. Give to him what's due to his name. But when he says, give to God what's God, everything belongs to God. You belong to God. When I Googled this for just research and stuff, it's amazing. All the focus of this text on your articles is give to Caesar. What does it mean? I think the scarier part is give to God's what is God's. Because everything belongs to God. Giving to Caesar is easy for me. What do I, am I giving to God everything? That's scary for me. I could go to jail. I'm okay with that. But what does it mean to give to God everything? And so this is what Paul writes. For Christians, this is us, right? What belongs to God? Listen to what he says. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Who do we belong to? We don't belong to ourselves. We don't belong to this country. We don't even belong to our parents. Christians who say Jesus is king, we belong to God as his instruments. So it's so funny. We're instruments, and we're telling God what to do. God, I have a better plan for you. You're doing it wrong, God. Here it is. You need to give me a job that pays $300,000 a year when I'm 45. God, you're doing it wrong. This is not the woman I want to marry. What's going on? And we have it all upside down, even in the Christian world. Give to God what is God's. Who belongs to God? Please say me. I hope we can say that. I belong to God. And so we live in the United States, and, but Christians obey the law, follow the leadership. By the way, if you're complaining about any leadership in our country, I hope that as people of integrity, for every complaint we make in public or Facebook, you're making 10 times the prayer for the leadership. Just, just saying, because that's what we do. We bless our enemies. We bless those people who persecute us. We love those who don't love us back. And youth group, we learned it Friday. What kind of love is this? Agape love. God's love. So Jesus goes around and says this. And so I want to share this, um, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if there's anybody in this world that knows a tyrannical land, government over us, and he wants to be faithful to Christ, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a man of God who loved Jesus, and he fled Nazi Germany, came to the United States, and could have lived a great life teaching in seminaries. He flew back to Nazi Germany, and he was executed when he got caught. In, the, in that short life, he wrote many books. One of them is Life Together. I recommend every Christian reads this in your lifetime. And this is what he writes. There is his commission, his work. 
The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. Wow. Where's the kingdom of God? It's in the midst of your enemies. Not in the secluded bubble. Not like keep the world away. We're going to keep ourselves just devoted to Christ and we're going to be fine. The kingdom of God invades the world of Satan. He goes on. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but the devout people. Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you are doing, who would ever have been spared? Quotes Luther. So is our job to be a bubble and to keep the evil world away? I think Jesus Christ, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. We invade the society with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We redeem these things back for the Lord. And we turn it for good. The impact of the kingdom is this. We live in America. And some people are being persecuted in Algeria, in China right now. They're tearing down churches. And I doubt they're going to say the church is gone. We're done. They're going to worship God even harder because the kingdom of God is, dwells in the midst of Satan's rule. And Satan will not win. And so Christians, our job is not to keep our kids safe from the world. Equip them for the world with biblical truth, character training, and faithfulness. Practically speaking, what belongs to the kingdom of God? Is it our time? It's God's time. Is it our money? My money, I earned it. It's God's money. Is it our children? My children? It's God's children. Even my sons and daughters. And so having rooted in Christ, we live for this kingdom. And I just want to wrap it up with a few things. Just, we're almost done. The article that I read from uh, George Sitzer, he, he writes this. And the timing was perfect. One of our members sent it to me. And I said, how did you know I was going to preach on this? And let me read it for you. The title is called The Early Church Thrived Amidst Secularism and shows how we can too. Instead, Christians engage the culture without excessive compromise and remain separate from the culture without excessive isolation. Christians figured out how to be both faithful and winsome. They followed what was then known as the third way, a phrase that first appeared in the second century letter to a Roman official named Diognetus. What made the third way so successful and fruitful? At the heart of it was a unique identity and mission of Jesus. Jesus Christ shaped everything that followed in his wake. This is what it looks like when people give to God what belongs to God, our whole selves. We give ourselves to Jesus. And everything about Jesus' mission and purpose becomes our purpose and mission. Amen? This is it. And so when Jesus ends... As we go back to this statement, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You belong to God. In Christ, we can thrive in this society even with the Caesar because we belong to God. And in that truth, we cling to the hope and joy of the king who reigns over us in the kingdom of God that Satan can't even tear down, that the government can't tear down. You belong to a different kingdom as you live in this geographic location. How do we know this king is different? 
the very king that said, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God the things that are God, gave all of himself, all of himself on the cross of Jesus Christ so that we can fully, wholly belong to God and we can live in this kingdom of heaven with the righteous king who will never let us down. Friends, give to God what belongs to God. We belong to God, and he is faithful. Let's pray. God, give us a lot more wisdom and depth. Through your Holy Spirit, shape our thoughts and our hearts. Forgive us for compartmentalizing you in our lives and saying this is the God part, this is the my joy part, this is my life family part. But God, all of it belongs to you. And even in tyranny, when we give to rulers and authority that we may not even like, but as you command us to obey for your sake, help us to live in this weird space of post-Christendom so that your light shines brighter, so that your salt preserves better. And that as your people who are devoted to Christ and are becoming like Christ, we start seeing the kingdom of God penetrating and changing the people and the society around us. God, this is not only our prayer, this is your work. Help us to join you in redeeming this world and the people that are marked by your image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.